Profit Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help edit. It's Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of that magazine, why not head to our website? It's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. We will happily send you a copy of the very latest issue. But today on The Profile, I'm speaking to Trevin Wax. Trevin was named by Christianity Today as one of 33 millennials leading the next generation of evangelicalism. He's the Bible and reference publisher for Lifeway, the largest chain of Christian bookshops in the USA. And he's also managing editor of The Gospel Project, a chronological Christ-centered Bible study for all ages. He's also a pastor and author. Trevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here. You're clearly a busy man. I mean, the number of things I I listed in that introduction, I'm really excited to dig into it. Um, But first of all, I should say welcome to the UK. Tell us what you're over here for. Uh, We are on a Spurgeon tour. We are um, uh, launching, uh, as part of our publishing group, we're launching several Spurgeon resources all at the same time. Uh, we, ha- our pu- we are publishing recently discovered what were lost sermons of wow. Charles Spurgeon, uh, some of the earliest sermons that he preached at uh, Water Beach Baptist Church, even before he wound up being the pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, we are publishing a historical novel about Spurgeon's relationship and mentoring of a runaway slave from Virginia. Mm. And uh, we are also uh, publishing a Spurgeon study Bible this wow. year. And so the convergence of those three mm. publishing projects all came together, and that brought us all here uh, to uh, to London and the surrounding area yeah. to, to talk about Spurgeon. So you've come all the way over from America to learn about, I guess, one of Britain's you know, arguably greatest preachers of one of, of the world's time. greatest preachers. One of the I world's would say. greatest preachers. Yes. So, what's fascinating about this is I understand there has been a real interest, particularly in America, in Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And yet, you're over here on a British radio station. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you the question: Who is Spurgeon? Because not everyone will actually be aware of this country because in this country, because as I say, a number of people in America have really became very interested in in this man, but some Brits won't know who he is. So who was Spurgeon and why is he so interesting? So Spurgeon uh, was a a pastor who was uniquely used by God uh, during his his life and ministry, uh, was converted uh, at a Methodist chapel when he was uh, a teenager. Uh, When he was 16, he began pastoring his his first church. Um, and then wound up in London where he was a um, uh, pastor of a church of 5,000 or so people uh, in the mid-1800s, the late 1800s, so during the Victorian era. Um, that size of congregation uh, even today is massive, but especially uh, back then. But Spurgeon, it was known for many things. He began orphanages here. He led over 60 different organizations, was very involved in social work. Um, but was also uh, is best known, I would say, for his his preaching skills. Mm. Um, he is someone who uh, believed in the authority of God's word, uh, believed that God's word was uh, meant to be preached powerfully so that people would understand the gospel um, and believe in Jesus Christ. And because of that kind of uh, um, uh, passion that he had for God's word, uh, God used him mightily, and um, he he had more uh, published works at his time than anyone else in English uh, in the English language. Wow. Uh, more words published because of so many of his sermons for yeah. so many years, um, and I think the enduring legacy of Spurgeon uh, comes back to the fact that he had a way with words. Mm-hmm. He knew how to proclaim the truth beautifully mm. in a way that would stir the emotion. He spoke to the common man. He, he uh, never was formally educated, although he certainly was educated in the scriptures and, and understood the, the culture that he was ministering to well. Um, but uh, because of his, his um, preaching uh, and how well he was able to express precious truths, mm-hmm. I think that is the reason why even today, mm. uh, more than 150 years later, mm. uh, Spurgeon is still widely regarded around the world. He's still very respected. 
and why there is still so much interest in his in his yeah. life and legacy. Absolutely. Well, first here on the profile, we always like to ask a person about their own life and background, something of their own faith. So tell me about life growing up and what was your first encounter with Christianity? I don't remember my first encounter with Christianity because I was too too young to know it. Right, um, yeah. I, probably, I, they, they're, they're now saying new scientific studies are showing that uh, babies in the womb can already hear uh, parents talking. So I'm certain I heard my parents praying even before I was born. Yeah. Uh, but I was, I was raised, uh, I was born into a, a Christian family, uh, a, a Baptist family in uh, uh, the southeast United States. And um, from the time I can remember, I was in church, um, at church services two, three times a week, um, was already learning memory verses and catechism and things like that from the time I was three or four years old. Um, I I never recall a time when I wasn't um, very interested in the Bible, Mm -hmm. in the scriptures. And so a lot of people have a the kind of testimony where they say, this is who I was, my life before Christ, and this is who I am now that I have followed mm-hmm. Christ. Uh, when I give my testimony, I have to think of it more in terms of a trajectory. Mm-hmm. Where might I have gone if my sinful inclinations and proclivities had had been, uh, um, if I had been enslaved by them for a long period of time? Uh, where might I have gone had God not saved me at a, at a young mm-hmm. age? So I was very young when I was uh, saved. I was eight years old when I was baptized, and um, uh, it, probably a, a teenager, about fourteen or fifteen, when I really began to to understand Scripture on my own without someone simply teaching me. Mm-hmm. I it was coming to to hear God speak to me, and um, so that's uh, about the time God was placing in my heart a passion for ministry, for missions and uh, for uh, for more intense Bible study. Mm. And so I'm very grateful to God that he saved me at a young age. Um, and I, I think any rescue from God is dramatic, but that's just the way mine yeah. took shape. So what did uh, what happened next in terms of the passion for ministry? Did that lead to more study? Uh, first, it led to, to mission work. Um, I had gone on several mission trips to the Eastern European country of Romania, mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the 1990s, I first went when I was 15, and then I went every year after that with uh, a team from our church. We would uh, do evangelism. We were involved with um, medical clinics. Uh, we did dental work, fitted people people for eyeglasses, and uh, did all sorts of things during those those uh, um, other years. Uh, I, I took a gap year between my uh, my high school and college before anyone ever even called that a, a gap year. Uh, it wasn't as popular then. Okay. <laughs> I had people telling me, don't do this. You will never finish your education. Uh, you know? yeah. But I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at the time. And yeah. it seemed silly to begin to begin uh, um, paying the enormous amounts that yeah. it costs for a college education before you really know what you want to do and mm-hmm. what you want to study. Um, and in that year when I was working and um, and still growing in my faith, um, I sensed very strongly the Lord was saying, uh, you need to move to Romania and you need to do your schooling there. Yeah. Um, and so when I was 19, I bought a one-way ticket and I moved. And I, I lived in Romania uh, for the bulk of the next five years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did uh, mission work in villages surrounding the city that I lived in. Um, I, I did my undergraduate work at a Christian university there. Um, learned how to preach and teach in a different language. Mm. Um, I had a radio ministry at the time. Um, my, I, I met my wife while I was there. We were both married. She's a Romanian uh, in, in her nationality. But um, we, we also had our first child while we were still living there in oh. that period. So that five-year period in mm. which I was called and commissioned yeah. to service there was deeply formative mm. for me. Yeah, tell me more about that. Because Romania, as I understand it, is actually quite a, a Christian country in one sense. If you look at the, the breakdown, I think about 80% is, is Orthodox background. Um, almost everyone, it seems, would claim some kind of a Christian faith. So what does mission look like in that kind of a context? It's a very good question. Uh, so Romania, uh, the Orthodoxy in Romania reminds me somewhat of what um, Baptists are like in the Southeast United States. Okay. Um, uh, a, something that everyone claims, but is not necessarily a heart felt religion. It's right. m- as much of a 
a national identity mm-hmm. or some uh, a, a cultural um, a place for cultural milestones to be celebrated, uh, not necessarily something that is connected to a deep, heartfelt, personal mm-hmm. relationship with Jesus Christ. And so um, mission in Romania, although I, I, I did meet um, uh, some Orthodox uh, believers who would have been very passionate about uh, their faith and in conversation with them would uh, have perhaps recognized me as a brother. Uh, there, there were many people who I would say nominal at best mm-hmm. uh, in their in their um, their Christian faith, and so uh, a lot of our emphasis and our desire was to um, to, to to see revival take place in in this country where uh, you have a, a veneer of Christian heritage, but but not necessarily the the true. Uh, converted heart mm. that um, that we believe that the the, the scriptures mm. would show us, and what we have seen throughout church history has mm. been uh, so so vitally important. Uh, what did ministering abroad at quite a young age? How did that sort of set you up for the rest of your ministry back in America? What kind of things did you learn? I, I've often said that one of the best ways to understand your own culture is to leave it. Um, when the the longer you are outside of the the culture and the heritage that you've known, the the um, the better you are at seeing some of the assumptions and cultural things that you have never thought to question because mm-hmm. it has always just been the way that this is this is normal, right? Mm-hmm. This is uh, the way things are. Um, I think you can do good uh, analysis of your own culture and your own society without ever leaving, but there is something to be said. It's a little bit of a fast track Mm. to understanding where you've come from when you have left and you see it from the outside in, so to speak. Um, So for me, I, I can't quantify really the, the, the impact of those five years outside of my context in the United States uh, because the, uh, the ability to come back into the United States and to be able to to see three to see things through different eyes. Mm-hmm. The fact that I I'm married to a, uh, a Romanian citizen. She's now now a U.S. citizen. But uh, the fact that I'm also married to a Romanian. We speak Romanian in our home. We have um, this this sense of a of, of a dual life when it comes to culture, mm-hmm. uh, both church culture, then also um, uh, our our the different societies that we've mm-hmm. come from. Um, I, I, I can't quantify just how much that has helped me be able to distinguish between what is essential in our Christian understanding, our Christian life and Christian faith, and what is um, um, non-essential. What are those preferences or uh, cultural marks that um, uh, may be good, helpful, perhaps the diversity of, of different cultures is is. Um, uh, something we can benefit from. Mm-hmm. So tell us a story of how you met your wife in Romania. Uh, we met while we were doing ministry. Actually, we met at the train station on the way from the city that I lived in to the village where I had been serving. Uh, she came with a group, uh, another group of college students uh, to be to serve in, in um, the church that I was a part of. Uh, shortly after I moved to Romania, um, that's when we first met. Uh, we didn't really start to connect at a deeper level or begin to talk or uh, discuss things more seriously until uh, more than a year after that, uh, I was um, tasked, both of us actually, were tasked with beginning an Awana group, uh, which is a kids ministry okay. that stresses Bible memory verses. It's right. an international ministry, um, and she had had some experience with that. Mm-hmm. And we were both tasked with starting this Awana group together in the village that I had been serving in. It was a way that we wanted to rally a lot of the children from the church, but then from mm-hmm. the village, be able to, to teach scripture memory, uh, to be a good influence on the children. Um, and uh, it was in the long rides from <laughs> the train station to the village, the long walks from the train station in the village to the place where we would do Awana. By the time we set up and we would tear down and we would go through the training of leaders and the Awana thing, we then we would have lunch, and then have the long walk back to the train station, and then the train ride back to the city. It's one of those things where um, a lot of time to just yes. talk and get to know Do you feel like you're being other. set up? Uh, by God, maybe, not by her. Um, <laughs> well, I was just wondering who, was, who made the decision to uh, send these two young people to a long way away on this train each day. Did, was, there was no behind-the-scenes thinking, oh... 
I can the, spend some time together. The, the <laughs> pastor that asked us both to do that, I should I should check with him. <laughs> it's possible it's that possible. it was a setup. I, I, I he's never told me that, but <laughs> it is possible. If not, it was just God setting you up. That's right. It, it, <laughs> either way, it worked. So. Excellent. So, uh, how did things progress from there? Because obviously, you know, you said you were there five years, moved back to to the U.S. So, so what happened next? Uh, next, we came back to the United States. I wanted to do um, uh, my Master's of Divinity. I wanted to train for ministry. And so we wound up for about 18 months. We lived in Louisville, Kentucky. I was a student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, we were there on campus for a short time. And then I became an associate pastor at a church in uh, southern Middle Tennessee, um, several hours away from Louisville. And we, we wound up uh, living there, and I would I, I would do classes from a distance, and uh, I, I found ways to finish my education over the next few years. Uh, served as an associate pastor for several years, and um, had had been writing all throughout this time. Mm. Um, and through my my writing ministry, my blog, and then some of the books uh, that uh, I uh, one book that had already come out, one that was was close to coming out. Um, that is when uh, I was contacted by by friends at Lifeway, right. who who were looking uh, for someone to start a a new curriculum for churches to be using in their mm. their small groups or their Sunday school environments or home groups, and 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 um, that is what led me from church ministry mm. into into that. Um, yes, ministry. and that project is the Gospel Project. That's right. So tell us about what that is, because I think most people listening to this won't have any idea what exactly that project entails. What? Is the the Gospel Project is a curriculum for all ages. So there's a a children's version, a, a student version, and then an adult version. And the gist of it is to show to to take you through the major stories of the Bible chronologically, mm-hmm. so that you get in in the course of about three years, you'll go through all of the Bible's major stories and passages chronologically, and all the way through. the The intent is to show how all of the Bible tells one overarching story mm-hmm. and how that story points us to Jesus Christ as the hero of redemption. And so the 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 focus of the gospel project is both a chronological journey through the Bible mm-hmm. that is very focused on Jesus Christ as the fulfillment as the the mm-hmm. the main character, the center of the scriptures. And um it really is a a way of reading the scriptures um, that um we we believe should be formative mm-hmm. for the church. We want children uh, students and adults uh, to not come to the Bible first asking the question, uh, what does this passage say to me? What does this passage tell me what to do? Mm. We think the first question should be, what does this passage tell me about God, mm. who he is, what he is like? Um, then what does this passage, how does this passage point us to the gospel, what Christ has done for us? And then and only then do we ask the question, how now do we live in light of what Jesus Christ has done? Mm. Uh, one of our concerns has been that uh, some books and curriculum over the years have, have trended in a direction of, of, of being so super practical from beginning to end that you, you might miss the the um, the fuel that actually would enable us mm. to obedience mm. uh, would enable us to be faithful Christians and the fuel for the for the Christian life is the gospel it's the Holy Spirit using the the message of the gospel the truth of the gospel to inflame our hearts to uh, free us up for mm. ministry in the world that God has called us to. Could, could you explain that a bit further? So let's say, for example, you're a Sunday school teacher and you're trying to teach some of the stories of the Old Testament. What's a sort of typical way that that isn't done so well that a project like this tries to correct? Well, I, to give one example, um, I, we were my, my son was asking me once, um, he, he said, Dad, what's the difference between the gospel project and in other curriculum options that are out there for um, for the church. And he was probably nine or 10 at the time. And I think when he asked me, I, I he might've been asking me wondering, uh, is there a better curriculum out there? Or <laughs> are we just using this at our church because dad is helping with it? Yeah. You know? um, and I said, and I gave an example of one that I had actually seen not that long ago. I said, well, you, do you remember the story of Daniel and his friends when they were taken into exile, uh, and the uh, they were they were told they would need to to eat the king's meat. You know, they they had their mm-hmm. names changed, and they were you know they were um, uh, being assimilated into the culture of the time, uh, and they were supposed to eat uh, certain foods that were there that were off limits to them as faithful 
as faithful Jews. And um, and he said, yes, I remember that story. It hasn't been that long ago. We we discussed that in, in our in, in the Gospel Project. And I said, good. I said, what what if I told you that there was a curriculum that told that story and the emphasis or the application of that story was uh, God gave us bodies to take care of and we need to all eat healthy foods. Um, And he looked at me kind of strange and said, well, I I guess you could get there. (laughs) He was wondering how (laughs) it seemed strange to him. I said, well, what do you think the point of that story is? And he said, well, the point of that story is that you, you trust God, that he is good, and you obey his commands because you've you trust that his way is mm. is right and i i was glad to hear him say that because that i do think that's a, the a, the stronger application from that from that story but i um i i think that the challenge is we sometimes in the desire perhaps to be relevant or to to be cutting edge uh, sometimes our application or our focus, what we focus attention on in the in the scriptures, is not where the power is. Mm-hmm. Um, if if there's something that a, a an educational cartoon for children that's not even Bible based would tell your children to eat their vegetables, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think it necessarily is is best for the church to have an application, not that we would be against eating vegetables and eating healthy, but it's not, there's nothing unique. It's not the primary goal of no, the church. No, right? it's, just, it's not, it's, there's nothing unique there. The uniqueness, the power is the gospel message itself. Unless we get there mm. in every single session, we have missed what truly makes the church mm. the church. Mm. Is this sort of a project, I, I guess for you personally, almost like a natural outflow of what we were talking earlier about being in Romania? And although many people would identify as Christians, have they actually understood really what the gospel means? Has it changed their life? And a similar problem in America, you seem to be saying, with some of the curriculum not putting the gospel at the heart of it. It, it seems like there's a sort of thread here that runs parallel with some Absolutely. of your own experience. Absolutely. I, I think... Um, th- Many, many times the the, the great danger uh, for the Christian church is not atheism and resistance from outside. It is nominalism and a lack of of true conversion from inside. And um, one of the one of the things that I have seen both in my in the context I've served in in the United States and in Romania is is what that sort of superficial um, uh, just on the surface Christianity, can actually do it. It can it can serve as an inoculation against the 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 true faith uh, to to let people think that they're okay because they have this relationship with a church that they rarely go to, but maybe here on certain occasions will show up at um, without ever them ever really hearing the the gospel message that is transforming mm-hmm. uh, the life. And so. Um, Definitely, the Gospel Project for me personally is part of that mm. overflow from the, the different ministry contexts that I've been in. So, as you mentioned, you work for Lifeway, which is one of the world's biggest providers of Christian resources. Um, so what's your favorite Christian book? You know, um, I, have, I, I have just given some thought to this recently, uh, what my answer would be to this. And um, I would have to say it is Confessions by Augustine. Mm. Um, I think going way back to the beginning. I, I, I have to go back there. I have um, I've read it three times in three different translations. There's a new one out actually wow. from Sarah Rudin that is uh, quite uh, quite remarkable um, and gives you a, a little bit of the literary style and majesty of that of that work. But what I love about confessions um, is that Augustine it, it, it's the story of a love affair between Augustine and his God. It is, um, he is definitely a brilliant man. He's using his rhetorical skills all throughout the book. Um, he is using his intellect. He's, he's trying to understand time and eternity and creation and uh, um, God's infinite mm. majesty. You see this throughout the book. He, he, he winds up falling into, or just going into all of these tangents almost where he's trying to understand the world, and so he's his mind is on fire, but more importantly, his soul is on fire. Mm. The way he speaks of God, um, it, 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 he he speaks of God in terms at times almost erotic, in the sense of he he feels so passionately drawn 
to God. And so um, even though it is um, the story of, of uh, God finding Augustine, um, it, it, it really is, is also the story of uh, Augustine's heartfelt response to the God who has pursued him. Mm-hmm. And there are things that puzzle me in the book. There are mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> things that uh, b- cultural blinders, I think, that Augustine had that many in his day did, and um, theological things that I would disagree with. But I, the reason I go back to that book again and again is because it is a challenge to me that my that it, it, God not only set my uh, mind on fire, but my heart on fire, that all of my intellectual pursuit would be in service to uh, um, loving and knowing and mm-hmm. growing closer to this God who is, uh, has saved me, who mm-hmm. has changed me. Well, that brings us to the end of part one of The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. We'll be hearing more from Trevin Wax right after this. It's 500 years since Martin Luther hammered home his message that kick-started the Protestant Revolution. In the October edition of Premier Christianity, we ask what exactly did the Reformation do for us, featuring leading voices on both sides of the debate, a dialogue between a Catholic and Protestant on trading places, and a look at the women who influenced the movement. Plus interviews with Christy Wimber on why she chose to close her thriving charismatic church, the family who have instituted tech-free Sundays, and stories of faith behind the bars of an immigration removal centre. Ask for your free sample copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales, and I am speaking this week to Trevin Wax. So let's listen in to the second part of our conversation. What do you currently do at LifeWay? Because it's obviously a huge organisation. What's your particular focus? For several years, I've been editing The Gospel Project. About a year ago, I transitioned into a a new role there where I'm overseeing the Bible and reference side of the organisation. And that means that I'm uh, overseeing the publication of our Bibles. Mm-hmm. We we um, publish in several translations, including King James, uh, New King James, and the Christian Standard Bible, the CSV. And certainly, you know, here in the UK as well, there are many new study Bibles coming out, you know, all the time, it seems. Is it ever slightly difficult, though, to think that there are some languages where they don't even have the Bible in its original? And of course, both in your country and mine, I can walk into any Christian bookshop and there'll be almost hundreds of different types of Bibles to choose from. It certainly is. And we, we, um, that's one of the reasons we partner with um, a global group that is uh, highly committed and involved with getting the Bible out to more and more people in those languages where it is not out yet. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the things that um, weighs on my heart as a Bible publisher is something actually that I came across when I was... Uh, uh, working through my way through all of the notes in the Spurgeon study Bible mm. that we have coming out soon, which is, it's really the biblical text um, with Spurgeon's comments and notes there on the page underneath. And I believe it was in Jeremiah. He he makes the, he remarks something of the effect of, you know, how many Bibles do we have in our homes? What if all of the Bibles on our shelves were to stand up, rise up in judgment against us for what we know and yet what we have failed to fulfill, to put into practice. Mm-hmm. And he was making the case that we, we have all of these Bibles around us. And, mm-hmm. and this is back in the 1850s. I assume yeah. that many homes now have even more Bibles than were probably yeah. popular then. Yeah. Um, but that, that weighs on me as a Bible publisher because I think, you know, we, we have such a wealth of resources mm-hmm. in the English language. Uh, we should be grateful for them. Mm-hmm. But uh, to whom much is given... Much is required. Mm. Is the industry in general, I don't know if you'd like to use that word, some of you don't like, like to use the word industry when it comes to, to Christian stuff, I've been told off for that before, the, the community in general of those who publish and distribute and sell Christian resources, is that struggling as much as it appears to be in the UK? I mean, in this country, we've had major Christian bookshop chains in recent years had to close down, go out of business. 
Is that a concern where you are as well? It is a concern. Um, that we, We've had similar things take place in the U.S. as well. I, I don't think it's necessarily a reflection of Christian publishing as much as it is a, a reflection of the changing retail environments. Um, the ability to be able to find books quickly that you're looking for or particular Bibles and things that you can find online very fast and then be able to, to have delivered uh, relatively easy um, has, has made the, the bookshop um, as a retail location uh, has, has made it difficult. And so even a, a, an organization with as long um, a history as Borders in the United States, uh, not a Christian book chain, mm-hmm. but just a, a, a well-known yeah. book chain going out several years ago, um, was was certainly a sign of things to come. Mm. Family Christian stores most recently in the United States, the biggest uh, Christian bookstore chain in the United States, has recently um, uh, uh, closed its doors as well. So um, I, I think the retail environment is very much in flux now. What that is going to mean for publishers mm. remains to be seen. I think mm. everyone is is trying to to figure out how how do we be faithful in this changing environment. So for you, it's not necessarily a warning sign about increasing secularization. It's, it's more just that people are choosing to buy those same Christian books online. Yes, I do. I do think that you lose something when it comes to the the, the disappearance of, of Christian retail locations. Mm-hmm. You lose the ability to walk in and discover, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but there are other ways of, of helping people discover resources that they're going to need. And so um, I, I would not blame that on mm-hmm. the, the trend towards secularization mm-hmm. per, simply because there are uh, secular bookstores and book chains that have, have also seen a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned you love writing. Obviously, that includes blogging as well as it does books. But I wanted to talk about This Is Our Time, which is your latest book. So tell me a bit about what uh, made you want to write that title and give us a sense of what it's about. Yeah, uh, the the title has a double meaning of sorts. Uh, the the book is is something of a primer on 21st century uh, Western culture. Uh, what is life like in Western societies in the 21st century? Uh, what will faithfulness look like in these different spheres of life? And so there's different chapters that are covering different areas of our life. The first one is uh, the, the the smartphone. You know, t- the interface of uh, faith and technology. Uh, then moving on to entertainment choices, to how we conceive of the purpose of life, mm. to uh, our consumeristic habits, you know, of, of shopping and buying and selling and our career path. Um, so when I say this is our time, I'm saying take a look at this book. This will give you a good overview of the time that we live in and what faithfulness might look like in it. Um, but then there's also, many people emphasize the hour. This is our time. We are to run the race with endurance, run to win the prize. And Many Christians, I'm afraid, feel overwhelmed and confused and uncertain. The cultural shifts are happening so rap- are happening so rapidly that I think I think many Christians that I've talked to um, lack confidence. Mm. They 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 want to be faithful in this time, but they don't even know how to receive all of the messages they're bombarded with day in and day out. And um, and as a result of that, I think there are Christians that are anxious and some who who are a little bit begrudging of the fact that they are in this particular moment mm-hmm. in time. Um, and I, to that, have to say, no, God hasn't made a mistake. Mm-hmm. He has placed us here in a mm-hmm. particular place now in a particular time mm-hmm. to be faithful to him. And um, we, we shouldn't begrudge the moment that we are in. Mm-hmm. We need to be faithful in it. This is our time. Mm-hmm. God has... Uh, God has put us here and now, and we we need to be faithful. Do you think Christians in America are being marginalized at the moment? Uh, in some in some spectrum segments of life, in some spheres, yes. Uh, I think you're seeing that take place in certain institutions of higher learning. Um, I, I think that's uh, something that's well known and among many um, people in secular society. Some might say is deserved. Um, uh, overall, as far as just public life in general, I don't think that uh, claiming marginalization for Christians is healthy. I think it can breed um, uh, that sense of resentment that right now is driving a lot of the political discourse in the United States, not just among 
Christians, but among people in general. Mm -hmm. The kind of identity politics where um, whoever can claim the status of victim is the one who is able to be uh, ascendant in, in cultural matters and, and be able to turn that victimization into a certain kind of privilege. Um, I, I think Christians have seen a loss of cultural status and privilege, and in reacting to that, many Christians have said that this has led to marginalization, um, or some even will use the word persecution uh, in very rare instances, would I would I say that that's true in the United States? Uh, though those that 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 those particular mm-hmm. uh, more more difficult circumstances, mm-hmm. um, for the most part, I, I think we need to to be careful that we don't become worldly in the way that we engage, um, allowing resentment to 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 fuel our 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 uh, pot, or our cultural engagement or to change our posture to the world to be mm-hmm. one that is of hostility mm-hmm. rather than uh, outreach and, and seeking to, to welcome people mm. uh, into the church. I think many people would argue that when it comes to Christians who are perhaps viewed as, as more conservative, you know, we can, we can debate the terminology, but, but those who would certainly hold to a traditional view of scripture, when it comes to engaging with the culture, it, you could make the argument that the typical Christian posture is one of hostility. It is one of saying, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, I don't like that TV show, that decision in that courtroom is wrong, we need to get back to the Bible it sounds like you're engaged, you're arguing for a very different way of engaging with culture. Um, I I think there are times when hostility or just outright opposition and resistance is the correct approach. So um, it it depends on issue, from issue to issue. Um, what what I do in the book This Is Our Time and what I what I recommend is that uh, we do two things when we are are looking at uh, the cultural landscape. We get to know our neighbors and the people in our culture well enough to be able to identify the longings that are at root in many of the uh, cultural narratives that people believe. Um, people don't believe that they don't they don't go for worldviews or cultural myths and narratives um, necessarily because they're always convinced intellectually by them. They mm-hmm. go for things because they want to believe that they're true. And going to that question of want, why does my neighbor who sees something very differently than than me, why do they want that to be true? Mm. And understanding the longing that's behind that is is vitally important. Um, the gospel would have us as good missionaries who are seeking to be on mission in the context God has placed us, uh, would have us really listen to understand the longing there. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, the uh, apologist who spent many years in Switzerland, um, uh, was once asked, if you could had an hour to share the gospel with someone, how would you use that hour? What would you say? And he said, I would listen for 55 minutes, mm-hmm. and then I would share the gospel in five. And I think his, his point there was to say, um, the best way I can learn how to properly and best, uh, most effectively present the gospel in a persuasive manner is to listen to what the longings are in, on behalf of the person uh, that is speaking. Uh, so longings is the first thing we look for, and then we look for the lies. I, I do think we have to be careful um, as Christians that we don't simply affirm the longings of people in society, that we also, the gospel has that challenge, right? It exposes lies. Light exposes darkness. Um, we're attracted to the light. We long for the light. But you know, if you're in a dark room and suddenly you throw up in the, the shades and the light blinds you, it's not always pleasant at the time. Um, and so we're not being faithful to the gospel if our um, our our message doesn't uh, cut against the culture at, at certain places. And so the challenge for us is how do we bring the light of the gospel to bear on the, the cultural narratives that people believe in our world in a way mm-hmm. that exposes the lies but also fulfills the deeper longings that they want to be true in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, many Christians are good lie detectors. They see the lies and they, they, they have the oppositional posture right away. Other Christians are more complimentary and affirming of the longings, but don't really have that, that word of challenge that the gospel brings. Faithful Christianity is not going to go into either sides of that. Faithful Christianity is going to expose the lies 
of our world, but in a way that fulfills, that connects to those deeper longings mm. in the culture that have led people to believe some of those lies in the first place. Mm. And I've heard others make, make similar points, perhaps about Jesus' own ministry of he was entirely truthful and also entirely loving. And of course, I think you already mentioned it in one of the chapters in your book, how then do you apply that to an issue as divisive as same-sex marriage or um, same-sex relationships? That seems to me to be a huge question that evangelicals in both our countries are facing. Um, have we got to grips with the best way forward on that particular issue? Um, I, I think I think we have work to do on on this, uh, both inside the church and in our engagement. Uh, when it comes to inside the church, I think we have we're going to have to be able to articulate and explain um, the reasons why we believe what we believe about marriage and sexuality. Um, if if it's true that the Christian church has always believed that marriage is between a man and a woman uh, united for life. Um, the, this covenantal kind of relationship that is oriented toward procreation and whatnot, the, the, the answer that we will have to be able to give, even to our own children in our churches, is to help them understand why we believe this. Not just what we believe to be true, but why. Um, otherwise, they are likely to believe what the surrounding society now accepts, that marriage is really just simply the government's bestowal of dignity on a romantic relationship, um, which that is a very different understanding of marriage than the coming together of the one flesh union uh, that we see in in scripture that is oriented toward the creation of new image bearers uh, of the one true and living God. So um, it's possible for in our churches for us to hold the line on same-sex marriage, let's say, and yet our understanding of marriage to be hollowed out from the inside out because everyone in our church really goes along with the predominant view of marriage and divorce and romance and uh, soulmates and all of this that's out there in society, um, and yet holds the line on same-sex marriage, that's not going to be uh, faithful. Faithfulness is is not going to simply be holding the line on same-sex marriage. But in in saying this is, you know, God says no to this, but demonstrating uh, and displaying the beautiful intent and design that God has for marriage in the first place. So before we speak to the culture on this, I think we, we have a lot of work to do in our, in our churches. Um, when we are engaging in society, um, this reminds me a bit of the pro-life movement in the United States. There was a time in the 1980s when... Uh, one of the the common um, one of one of the the common complaints or criticisms of the pro life movement was that, you know, people who are pro life they only really care about the baby until it's born. They don't care a thing for the mother. They don't care for the baby after it's born. Um, and then in the 1980s, that criticism had been made so many times. By the 1980s and 90s, there's a f- something quite phenomenal that took place in the United States, uh, the rise of the Pregnancy Support Center movement. There are now more crisis pregnancy centers in the United States than abortion clinics, two to one, in which Christians came together, pooled their resources, were able to walk alongside mothers in distress, help them through, uh, help help them uh, uh, financially, even after they had babies, have a very holistic approach to a, a woman to make th- this this choice of be a blessing to to uh, uh, these women and their families, um, that criticism that pro life people only care about the baby until it's born, I've seen even pro choice people now actually stand up and defend pro life people to say mm. that's not true. Mm. They may be wrong on abortion rights, but I know for a fact they help here and here and here. Uh, In other words, that slander that Christians didn't care, that Christians weren't loving, that slander no longer sticks because of the display and our witness. Somehow, in the next 25 years, 30 years, um, somehow the, the, the Christian church is going to have to figure out a way to be faithful to Christian to Christian teaching uh, about sex and marriage, while at the same time demonstrating and displaying love towards LGBT persons so strongly that 
our gay and lesbian friends, family members or neighbors will be able to say in 15 to 20 years, I know so-and-so. I think they're crazy, but I don't doubt they love me. Mm-hmm. I don't doubt that they care, that they have what, that they are compassionate toward me, that they want what's best for me. Um, we are going to have to figure out ways to love our neighbors in a in a world that is going to see us as as bigoted and backward and and whatnot. Let's take uh, one more issue from from your book. It's this is our time, and you deal with all these cultural issues. You, you mentioned it already. One of social media and technology. Um, now, I don't know about you, but often when I open Twitter, and obviously working for Premier Christianity Magazine, I follow a number of Christians on both sides of the Atlantic, and I look at what people are tweeting. I'd say at least at least once a day, if not more often, I just see a lot of arguing. Um, I see a lot of misunderstandings. I see a lot of anger, and I see a lot of polarization. Any thoughts on that does your book deal with that as a as an issue that we face in our culture of people seemingly becoming more and more angry online it certainly does i one of the one of the challenges of of a of an age where we are hyper connected is that um we're seeing a convergence of many disturbing trends i think one of them is that you have your telephone your phone with you at all times your smartphone um, your smartphone is tailored to your needs, to your desires, to your wants, right? Everything about it is geared toward you. So your phone is constantly telling you, you are the center of the universe, <laughs> right? It's putting you at the center of all things. Mm-hmm. When you're on social media, because we are bombarded and the deluge of information is so great, um, what the, tele- the, 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 the smartphone is also, and our social media use on the smartphone, is actually telling us two things that are, 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 are problematic, one is you have all the knowledge you need right here on this phone. You know, ask Siri if you have a question. You can Google anything. <laughs> yeah. you, can, you know, you have everything you need. When it comes to facts, you can find them all here. Now, I should stress, knowledge is different than wisdom. Mm. Information is different than wisdom. Sure. You won't gain wisdom on the smartphone, but you do gain a certain kind of knowledge. So you have that. Here's all you need. And then at the same time, your phone is also telling you uh, you are right. Because if you're like me, you can't follow everyone. You wind up following and listening to voices that are at least somewhat in line with what you already mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. and the way you see the world. And so even when you, a lot of people get their news, they're not so much getting just information from their news sources. They're getting affirmation mm-hmm. that their way of seeing the world is correct. Mm-hmm. So uh, put that together. You're the center of the universe you have every, all the knowledge you need right here on your phone. Um, you are right. You are right. You are right. Over and over and over again. When people come into conflict with opposing viewpoints, um, they're taken aback and angered because it is, um, and, and they must assume, well, either the person on the other end of this is either ignorant or they're evil. Mm. There, there can't really be a well-intentioned person that I simply have a disagreement with that I would try to use my rational powers to persuade. And so people go into attack mode very easily. Be- mm. Why? Because their hearts have been formed by a device that connects us to a world that is consistently reinforcing this myth that we have what we need to know and that we are right all the time. Many Christians in the UK are somewhat perplexed about the current political situation, especially in terms of Donald Trump. I would say the average UK evangelical would say, how could, you know, 80% of white evangelicals in America even think about voting for a man who, just in terms of his personal character, personal morality, let's put the politics to one side, just in who he is, you know, how could you vote for someone like that? And regardless of your own personal views, although feel free to share those if you'd like, I'd love to know your kind of analysis uh, to help UK Christians understand where our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in America, who vote in a very different way to how some of us would, how they arrived at that conclusion? That's a, a good question, and I'm, I'd be glad to give my opinion on it. I don't know how, how um, accurate it is, but first of all, let's unpack the, the percentages. So 81% of white evangelicals stress white there because evangelicals as a whole in the United States, the, the numbers would be quite different between those who are white and then uh, mm. you have um, Asian, Hispanic, African-American evangelicals 
uh, voting patterns very differently. So getting a full view of evangelicals in America would give you a different kind of thing. Um, another thing in unpacking that number of the 80% is that this is merely those who self-identify as an evangelical. A lot of people who, who identify as evangelical may never go to church, mm. for example. Sure, but you have people like Wayne Gruden backing Trump, and he's yes. pretty evangelical. True, true. You do. So that's another. So that's another version. So you have two kinds of evangelicals voting for Trump. You have um, the one who says uh, Trump is the lesser of two evils. Uh, both Trump and Clinton are abysmal candidates. Uh, neither one of them is a, a good choice in any way. But Trump is slightly better than Clinton uh, because of certain things that he's promised to do or certain positions that he has said he would take. You have that uh, evangelical. But then you do have a, a, a um, I would say it's a minority, but a very vocal minority of evangelicals, white evangelicals, who are avid Trump supporters and who the the surveys show will likely continue to support Trump no matter mm-hmm. what takes place, no matter no matter what he does. Um, that it, that um, number is is one that is probably most disturbing yes. to UK evangelicals. Is, is there is there arguably a bit of a discipleship gap though, where you could arrive at a position where you have any Christian saying that I will continue to vote for whoever person, whether it's Donald Trump or someone else, regardless of what they do, it seems to me that lacks discernment. Surely all of us should have a cutoff point where we say, actually, as a Christian, you've gone too far here. I think the the most challenging statistic and survey that I've seen so far has been the difference between evangelicals, white evangelicals, uh, five years ago and today, when asked the question, does private morality count for public office? Mm. It seems it used to, but it doesn't anymore. There was a massive switch in the last five years. What is deeply concerning to me and to many others, I think, is to see the the switch, the move of white evangelicals who at one point were the highest among mm. saying that private morality and character matters for public office. Now, that number switching and that being one of the lowest groups in America saying that private morality and public that's a that's an example of people abandoning the principle uh, because they want to vote a certain way mm-hmm. um, and so I think that is the most distressing statistic that that we've seen so big picture then as we uh, come towards the end what are your thoughts in general on the American church are you hopeful um, I can't help but be hopeful because I'm a Christian who believes in the resurrection, right? Um, as all of us believe in the resurrection, um, I'm I'm hopeful. That doesn't mean I'm optimistic. I think optimism and pessimism are not the right frameworks for for Christians. There are some things happening in the world that make me very excited. Some of the missions movements taking place, uh, resurgence of uh, Christ-centered teaching that I hope that the Gospel Project is a part of. But at the same time, I, I think. Um, being hopeful does not mean that you're a Pollyanna type who only sees the bright side. Mm. It means that even when things are dark or you think the witness of the church may be um, uh, affected or being obstructed by, um, by, by certain trends or by certain movements or choices or events that are taking place, um, being hopeful means that through the darkness, you, you believe that God is working out his purposes, that he is ultimately in control, mm. that uh, the gospel still has power to save, uh, and that we can be confident in it. And mm. so it's in that sense that I'm, I'm hope-filled. So just finally, how can people keep in touch with you and your work? Where can we find you online? You can find me online at trevinwax.com. Uh, that will take you to my blog, which is hosted by the Gospel Coalition, and that's where I do, do most of my, my writing. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook at trevinwax. Well, Trevin, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon on The Profile. Do hope you enjoyed my interview with Trevin Wax. If you'd like to hear more interviews with leading Christians in all areas from sport to entertainment, church leaders and more, why not head to our website? It's premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. You can also find details there on how to access this show as a podcast. So you can get all past episodes and listen to us on the go wherever you are. That's premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. I'm going to leave you now with Dave Rose, who's coming up next with Premier Playback.